So we're in 1 John chapter 5, like I said, the next to the last time, but as we do each week, I want to look at something else in John's life that informs this text, and I was getting kind of cocky. I'd been going in the last couple, like even last week, I even said, it's like, man, this has gotten easier. The more I know John, the more I've spent time in this book, the easier it is to find that passage. And then I get to our passage this morning, I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> where do I go? And I've spent considerable time trying to think. I'm like, where and, and how? And um, it was a good time of searching. It was a good time of thinking about it. I, I think I've found it, and um, it's hard. Uh, it's not as easy. So look at Luke 12. And so we're going to be in 1 John 5. You can mark your spot there. We'll be in, start out in Luke 12. And Luke 12 is no small passage. It's a passage that I was like, well, maybe I'll just start there in chapter 1 and we'll build up to it and I, we'd be here all day. And you don't want that. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a quick overview because this chapter is packed with a lot of stuff. And I could use it all but we just don't have time. Um, Verse 1 tells us it's crowded. It's a very crowded time. I'll I'll read verse 1. In the the meantime, when when they were gathered together, an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trode uh, trode one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all. So there's a big crowd there, and in the midst of this big crowd, he turns to his disciples, and he's going to instruct them. And so he's not talking to the crowd. He's talking to his 12 that are there. And he tells them, don't be like the Pharisees. Because I imagine in this crowd setting, you see a lot of different things. I don't know about you, I'm an observer of people, and I watch if you're sitting at a crowd you know, or something. You can kind of tell, and sometimes you can almost guess what's going on you know, with, with what's happening. You know, and, and, uh, and You've been there you know, and, and seen stuff, and so you can almost see that like you can see the Pharisees doing something, how something's behaving and pointing out, like, don't be like the Pharisees. See how they are, and he gives them that lesson. And he says... <clears throat> Maybe there's somebody then that's fearful of them, and they're, they're kowtowing to the Pharisees. And he says, no, you fear the one who could cast your soul into hell. Not what people can do to you, not what man can do, but you fear God. And so he uses that point and talks to them. He reminds them that God will care for them. He will supply all their needs if they're faithful and they're, they're obeying him. He tells them to plan for eternity, to live for eternity. Verse 34, as a matter of fact, he tells them to... Put their treasure there, for your uh, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He says, talk, you know, put your treasure there. If your focus is on heaven, it's going to affect the way you live on earth. If you're working toward heaven and you're working uh, for eternity, it's going to, you're going to do right on earth. You know, so aim there, aim, aim towards heaven. He tells them that. And then he tells them to be ready to go at any moment. You know, let your loins be girded, verse 35. Be girded about and your light's burning. It's like, it's ready to go. And he's, and he's kind of referring back to how they were supposed to be at the Passover meal. You know, they would be dressed and ready, not knowing when they were going to get the call to leave Egypt and to flee out. And so you're to be ready that way. You never know when a time is going to come. And boy, that hits us home. But verse 42 is where I want to pick up. Verse 42 is uh, <clears throat> this is a scary portion of Scripture. Uh, verse 42 says, Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom when... Uh, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. So he's talking about rewards here. You know, who in the household is he going to reward? Who's going to give, who is he going to reward when he comes back? And then he gives us a scenario, verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler, a ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. And shall begin to beat the manservants and the maidservants, and to eat and drink, and to be drunken. 
The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him asunder, and would appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. There's your happy, feel-good text of the morning. Uh, it's scary. Now, you can't lose your salvation. We interpret the unclear with the clear. We know that once saved, always saved. That, that's, that's evident. Jesus says, once you're in my hand, and I'm in my Father's hand, who can pluck you out that you have that? And he's talking about his servants here. He's not talking about the world at large. He's talking about the householder and his servants within his house. And so he's dealing with those within his house. But if it's the servant that doesn't act like his servant should. Because you can imagine in God's house, he wants his people to behave appropriately. To, to live a life that is pleasing. To, to do and have the decorum they're supposed to have. And he says, but there's some servants that don't act like my servant should. There's some that don't act like... Um, that even believes God, that even thinks God is who he says he is, or that God is coming back, it's almost like, the householder's gone! Woohoo! It's our house anymore! He's never going to return! We can live however we want! Not believing him. There's some that don't believe that they should live for God at all, or even that, like I said, even that he's real. They haven't been changed. They live like they haven't been changed by God. They've been a servant in God's house, and they've forgotten that they're a servant in God's house, and they're acting like they're someone else. Matter of fact, they're even mean. They pick on or persecute other servants. It says that they beat them and abuse them and what they're doing. You know, they they're claim to be fellow servants and they're picking on them. They don't even fellowship with them. They fellowship with the law. So the point where they start drinking and they even get drunk and they have no self-control. And God's like, who are these? They're, they're, they're supposed to be mine and yet they're living like I'm not returning. And they pay for it. Uh, it's different. See, there's different kind of groups. There's those that are saved. I think that there are those who are servants, those who are Christ's and in God's family. And then there are those who are the overcomers. And then there are the those that, that's also called the partaker view. There are the, there's the saved, where we're all saved, all the believers are saved, but then there are those who are the overcomers and partakers. Those who are involved in God's ministry, involved in God's house, who are serving the Lord. Here we have a description of that. There are those that are good, that he's going to reward, and there are those that are living like it doesn't really matter. I'm saved, so what? And they go out and they live like everybody else in the world. And he says there's going to be a stark difference. There's going to be a different reward for those. Some are going to be even punished for what they are doing. You know, they're not going to hell, but they're going to not have any reward. It's not like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You were horrible in your life. You get everything. All the rewards of heaven are yours. That's how it's preached, because that packs the seeds. But that's not what Jesus talked about. He says it is different. There are some that are going to be rewarded. There are some that are going to be rewarded with more. There's going to be some that are rewarded with less. There's going to be some that barely got in. They had their salvation, and that is it. So some are overcomers, and some are partakers. It's not like you're going to burn in hell forever. You're not. But you're going to miss so, so much when he wants to give you everything. He wants you to have everything. And he warns us in advance saying, I want you to have this. He encourages us. As a matter of fact, when he says he returns, I'm returning and my rewards are with me. He is one who wants to reward. He wants to get you to be faithful. He wants you to be obedient. He wants to reward you. Heaven is an inheritance. An inheritance is not something that's just like, you've got to give it to me. Some think that. You know, but, but, but imagine if you were a wealthy Person, you die and you leave your will and you leave your inheritance, and you had children that obeyed you and that were faithful and stayed along the family lines and honored the family name, and you had those who were disobedient who never came around. Matter of fact, slandered the family name and acted that way. I imagine the inheritance is going to be different. Those that were close and faithful unto them, they will probably be rewarded with more with more responsibility versus with those who did little and, matter of fact, trashed the family name. You know, they might not have anything if, if not barely anything. I think that's what we need to be thinking. It's an inheritance. 
Um, God uses those terms all the time. It's an inheritance for you. It's just not like, I get to heaven, I got the golden ticket, I'm Charlie Bucket, it's all mine. Uh, you know, Willy Wonka reference for those who don't know who Charlie Bucket is. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's not, not like that. He's like, it's different. Uh, he goes into more detail, verse 47. And that's why I picked this one versus this is also in Matthew 24. But, but Luke gives us more detail because he's talking just to the disciples. Verse 47. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself... Neither did according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him will he ask the more. Um, You would seem like, well, that tells me I just want to be ignorant. That's a path you can take. Uh, That's not what I recommend. (laughs) That's not how the Lord has set it up. He set it up for you to want to learn to want to obey, and then want to learn more, and to have more obedience and more responsibility, and to grow in that. And the family is the same way. You should want to, uh, especially if it's a family business, you want to apply yourself, you want to learn, you want to grow, and more responsibility given is going. Just imagine when you were at home. You know, the more <clears throat> obedient you were as a child, and if you kept your room picked up, and if you obeyed, and you did your homework, and you took the trash out, and you mowed the lawn, and all that, you had more liberty. You know, you had more license. You might have got a bigger um, allowance. You might have had, you know, you got the car at 16 because you had proved yourself to be trustworthy, where your brother, who was a little bit questionable, you know, might not have got his car until he's 18, or they had a shorter curfew. So, you know, your obedience and the reward in that, you got a greater reward versus those that were against it. And so he's encouraging that here, but he's encouraging you to go and seek after more, not to be ignorant. But the more we know, the more we are accountable for. And so it's kind of, a, God's good at what he does. He's put it, he goes, you are to seek it and desire it. But as you seek it and desire it, you're also to apply it and, and to live it out. I want you to grow. I want you to learn. As a matter of fact, that's heaven. It's not like we get to heaven and then we sit in the easy chair. Yes, it is a place of rest. But we will ever be learning. We will ever be growing. We'll ever be studying him who is unsearchable. The one that we can will never be God, and so, but we will be studying the one who is inexhaustible. And so it's not like we're going to get there like, I'm never going to learn. You will learn probably even in spite of yourself and maybe even give a greater capacity to learn. But I'm saying let's prepare ourselves now. That's what the Lord's saying. Study, know, grow. I'll reward you. Hit heaven running and ahead. I think the military is that way, right? If you have college and other things in there, you know, you start out higher than the ones that are just enlisted. But if you're enlisted in that way, you know, a different reward system. Same way, we can jump in this way. And it's a hard teaching. And you say, Brian, well, you picked it. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to give light into what we're going to be talking about in First John chapter 5. So John did. I'm blaming John. Uh, God's plan for us is to learn, to appropriate what we learn, to live that out in our life to obey him, and then to learn more, to desire to learn more, to desire to be more, to be like him, uh, to search his word all the harder, the more diligently, so that we'll grow in, in our holiness and in our resemblance of him. Yet, like I said, you're not to be willfully ignorant because you'll miss so much. You can, be, you can be that way, and some take that way. Hey, if I don't know it, I'll say I, see the, I, I, I experienced that at work. Oh, I don't want to learn how to do that because then I'll have to do it. Well, that's nice. <laughs> Thanks for helping out the company. You know, but you know, I think we probably all know somebody like that. Well, if I learn that and I have that responsibility, I'd be more required of me. It's like, and I get paid for doing this now. It's like, you know, but then there's also supposed to be a responsible employee. I want to learn. I like business. I like having a check. You know, and so you you want to work and learn more and do a better job. So you can kind of see how that applies. And so we are to learn and to study and to grow. Like I said, we're going to be doing it forever. Let's turn to First John and we'll see. And you're like, oh, this is. I've got y'all nervous about the text now. 1 John chapter 5, I pulled my marker out, 
And I'll tell you, if anything, the passage in Luke's a little bit easier <laughs> than what we have. But 1 John 5, and we're ready for verse 16, and we'll go through verse 19. So 1 John 5, verse 16 says, If any man see his brother in a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, and I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness and sin is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So it's a tongue twister, and it's uh, talking about stuff that, hey, no one really wants to talk about. Uh, I think this is probably one of the more avoided uh, scriptures. Uh, so you go to your handy-dandy commentary, and everybody's kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to pass that one by. I'm like, thanks. Leave Brian hanging. You know, <laughs> I go to help him, and there's nothing there. But, it's, but, I, but, I, but I think we've got some answers here. Uh, verse 14 was talking about our confidence that we're to have in prayer. Because we have, and that follows our memory verse, verse 13, because you know that you are saved, and John has given us seven proofs to show us, look at them as birthmarks, seven birthmarks to prove to yourself that you have salvation, you know, to know that you have salvation. He's gone through this, and he gives us these sevens, you know. He gives us seven of them to, to examine ourselves and see that we have salvation. If you have salvation, which he says, these things are written that you may know that you have salvation. He goes, I've given this to you. Now that you know that you have salvation, now that you can pray to God, and you can pray to God with confidence, knowing that he hears those who are his. And so he's given us a confidence in this, and he'll, and he'll answer what we ask if it's according to his will. And we talked about that last week. And so he's talking about prayer. He's kind of in the context of prayer, in the confidence of knowing that we are his, as in that we know that we have salvation. And so it's surrounded in that. And then he tells us here, basically verse 16, without all the other baggage that's around it, tells us to pray for our brothers and sisters. We are to be praying for our brothers and sisters. We're going to pray for our brothers and sisters that are in sin. He tells us that. You pray for them. If you see them in the sin, pray for them. Intercede for them. But a lot of times that gets missed because it's also saying... There's a time where he says, don't pray for them. And that's the one that strikes me. But we are to pray for each other. We're to pray for each other, especially if we see them in sin. Except that the thing that really grabs you is where it says not to. Uh, verse uh, 16. If any man see his brother in sin, brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask. So pray for the brother who's in a sin that's not this deadly sin. You can pray, intercede for them. And he shall give him life. For them that are not sent unto death. Matter of fact, it's life for each and every one of us. We are to pray each other's life support. If we see a brother in sin, we're to pray and intercede. Lord, may that be exposed. May I not have to say anything to him. We know that Matthew 18 gives us that, which is one of the texts I thought about going to that John would have seen, that if we have a brother in sin, that we're to have conflict with him, we're to go to them one-on-one. Then we're to go with some witnesses. Then it's begun before the church, trying to stop them from being turned over to Satan. We are to do that. We're to intercede in one another's lives. We are not on our own. We are not just wandering through life on our own. No, he's put us together as a core group, watching out for one another, caring for one another encouraging one another, edifying one another. That's what the church is. That's why I think it should be a smaller size church, where we do know one another, we're involved in each other's lives, that we do miss one another when we're not here, and we do pray for one another on a daily basis, or at least weekly basis. basis. And so there's that, but he's also saying there's, there's, a, there's a sin that you don't pray for. But we are to be praying. Verse 16, again, continues, it says, There is a sin unto death, and I do not say um, that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. So there is a sin that causes death in the believer. That if a believer commits this sin, um, 
God kills them. God takes them home. Uh, that's why this is avoided. Uh, there is a sin that also doesn't cause death. And so it's clear. There's, there's sins in our lives that don't kill us, and there's a sin in, out there that will kill us. So that's clear. And so then the question on all your faces and all on my heart here is, what's that sin? I want to stay away from that landmine. I don't want to go there, right? Boy, I wish that was easy. Uh, have you committed it? Let's just start there. Have you committed it? If, are, you, are you alive this morning? Some of you, I'm not so sure. <laughs> but if you're here and alive, then you haven't committed it. Because if you committed it, you'd be dead. Uh, and so there we can take a little breath. Brother, it's like, I'm not dead. <laughs> and so, so we have that. Um, uh, again, that's a little woo-woo moment. But uh, most commentaries will tell you that this is the unpardonable sin, uh, which is also in Luke 12. Um, and that's why I was tempted to even go through more in there. But I can tell you with 100% accuracy and confidence that they are 100% wrong. This is not the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's in Luke uh, 12, verse 10 that we were just there. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you attribute the works of God to Satan. Uh, when you deny him to the point where you become reprobate. Um, uh, it is a willful act. Um, some would even argue it's not even... Uh, committable today. Uh, now, there was a, a, a challenge on YouTube that went around a few years ago. It was the uh, blasphemy challenge where people go online and they would videotape themselves saying they hate the Holy Spirit and they'd say all these horrible things saying, there, I've committed the, I've committed the blasphemy. I want to lock myself in and never becoming a Christian. And they would say all these horrible things. Um, but I don't think they committed it. I think that, and many argue that they couldn't. They were thinking that it was only committed during Christ's lifetime and maybe during another time when we have miracles, maybe in the future during the tribulation. But uh, if Jesus was there showing himself to be the Son of God with infallible proof, sinless Son of God, where they tested him, they could find nothing on him, and he would perform miracle after miracle and do everything right in front of them, and they would say he did it by the power of Beelzebub. They took God's work that Christ was doing there in front of them, quoting the Scripture, showing himself to be who he is, and they attributed it to Satan. That's the unpardonable sin. Those Pharisees... Um, wouldn't be forgiven. They were that hard that they would take the evidence shown right in front of them and would attribute it to Satan and not to God. That's not forgivable. And so I think that's what he's talking about, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't think we could commit that today. But uh, these guys that do, did that, you know, they, again, it was just an unashamed unbelief. They were willful. They were rebellious. They were hard-hearted. They were reprobates. They were in God's face. They were antagonistically, antagonistic and evil. They were unbelievers. And verse 16 of John here, of chapter 5, says, If any man see a brother in sin, well, brothers are a member of the family. And so they have salvation. So they don't, haven't committed the, the unbelieving part. They do believe. And so we're not talking about unbelievers. That's why I can say 100%. He's not talking about the unpardonable sin here. He is talking to saved family members, those who are in the body of Christ. And it sounds really weird to even say all this stuff. And for John to say not to pray for somebody, that sounds weird, right? We are to pray. We are to be interceding on behalf of one another. Like, John, that's kind of weird. Where would you come up with an odd concept that we are not to pray for some people? Jesus. Look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Like I said, uh, after we get done with uh, Pilgrim's Progress tonight, I want to start on Jesus' prayer here in John 17, though I will go ahead and give you a warning. Next week will probably be, to make sure I get John done before we get into Advent, it's 
probably going to be a two-parter. We'll probably have a morning service and an evening service where I go over an overview again. But I really want to go over the overview. I want you to, we've looked at each individual verse. I want to look at some of the master plan as we pull back over the book of John. But John 17 is Jesus, this is really the Lord's Prayer. It's Jesus praying. Uh, the other prayer is more like the model prayer where he teaches, thy will be done, hallowed be thy name. That's more like the model prayer. This is actually his prayer. <clears throat> Verse 8 says, uh, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed on thou, uh, believed that thou didst send me. Verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world. But for them which thou hast given me, for they are mine. Jesus says right there, I don't pray for the world. I pray for those that you've given me. I pray for mine. It kind of strikes us weird uh, in that way, and we'll, and we'll go into depth on that when we study it there. But, but he doesn't pray for a group of people. He's praying specifically, especially in this prayer, he's praying for believers and encouraging them. And here, here John takes it and applies it in First John and says, Now you fellow believers, you pray for one another, but if there's one in a certain sin, you don't pray for him. So Jesus abstained from praying for somebody. Matter of fact, there's one, I forgot to write it down, in Jeremiah 2 where he tells us to specifically not pray for some groups of people that are in open and rebellious sin. Don't pray for them. Don't intercede. Let the judgment come. You know, so that's kind of scary. So there's a couple of different times. We always look for two witnesses. There's another one in Jeremiah. But in 1 John here, look at verse 19. It says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And so the whole world lies in wickedness. He knows that the lost is wicked, so he's not even thinking about them. Um, And so I think John does have that prayer in mind that Jesus was talking about, not praying for them. He's talking about praying for those in the church. So see, John isn't writing to the world. He's not praying for us to witness to the world in this passage other than he's just telling us how to behave as family members. This is God's family book. This is not just a book to the church. Those are epistles. This is considered the most intimate of the books written to us. This is the family book for those who are in the family and not just going by, skirting by, hey, I'm saved, I'm going to live like it. These are for the servants in the house who are trying to please him and trying to obey him. And those who are looking for his return. That In the parable of Luke 12 that we are looking at, we want to be the good servant that is watching, waiting, looking, not the one who is beating our fellow servants. And so he is writing it to those, those in the church, in the family, who are going to step further, trying to be the doers, trying to step up, reading, studying, applying it to their lives, taking on more as we're supposed to. It's God's family, the doers, the overcomers. Matter of fact, John says this, this is for the overcomers. And he gives that list there, you know, the ones who's going to get this inheritance, the partakers, not the lost. So it does sound strange, and it is, and it is avoided. And I think sometimes it's avoided consciously, sometimes it's avoided unconsciously. Because it doesn't pack the house, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't fill the offering plates, you know, going through these things, because it's hard things. But John is writing to the family, and the family are those that are there and ready to hear the hard things. I'm ready for more. Give me responsibility. Lay it on me. And I think that's who and where we are. That's why he puts it at the end. We are to send our treasure ahead. We're to put it in heaven. We're to be working for there, not here and now. So it's not necessarily about packing the house. It's about doing what God has told us and what's in God's word. So here goes. This warning is scattered throughout the Bible. And once I start down the path, hopefully the Holy Spirit in your heart will start writing it to you. You're like, okay, now I remember, now I see the pattern that is there uh, that John has pulled out for us. Aaron is a victim of this. He committed a sin where God killed him. Moses is a victim of this. He had committed a sin where God says, I have to strike you dead, and he did. Nadab, Abihu. They committed this sin where God had to take them out of the world. Achan committed that sin. Uzzah committed that sin. 
Ananias and Sapphira committed a sin where God had to strike them dead right then and there. There's another one I'll save for a minute. They committed a sin and they died. I'm talking about physical death, not spiritual death. We're talking about God has to take you out of this world and then he takes you to heaven. You do go to heaven. So I'm talking about physical death, not spiritual death. Spiritual death is the second death. That's what salvation has saved us all from. Betty Haig died. She was saved, but she died. But she is spared the second death. You know, we are spared the second death with salvation. And some of us will skip the first death. I vote to be in that crowd. You know, we'll have the rapture and we'll be taken out of here. Uh, but, but he's talking about the, the second death, the separation from God for all eternity. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. And, and I'm not going to look at all of them in detail, but at least this one. Uh, Numbers. So we're way back at the beginning. Numbers chapter 20. We'll see God's command. <clears throat> and for most of you here that are consistent, this is an account I bring up because God does hold it. God holds obedience, especially for these characters, uh, in a high regard because he is laying down patterns. Moses and Aaron mess up that pattern and God says, you're going to pay for it. Uh, so Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. Um, well, verse 7 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take thy rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock. So this is the second time that they've been without water. They are at a time where the people are murmuring. They're crying out, we want to go back. They need water. The first time Moses took his staff and he smote the rock and it brought forth water. This time God says specifically here, speak ye unto the rock. You're just to speak to it and it'll bring forth water. And before their eyes and it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, and so shall give the congregation and the beast to drink. And Moses took the rod from before him, of the Lord, uh, before the Lord, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Now you have to also remember, these are very irritating people. He's been very irritated with them, and they've been crying, and they've been on his back, and he's very aggravated at them. And here Moses is known as one of the meekest men in the world. He loses his temper. And it cost him. He says, Hear now, ye rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. So God performs it. Even though he did it wrong, God gives them water because they need it. But he's mad at Moses. He's mad at Aaron because this ruins the type. And uh, Paul tells us about it later. He says, The rock in the wilderness was a spiritual type of Christ. The first time it represented Christ giving us the living water, and the first time Christ came, they smote him, and it gave us that life giving water. The second time he comes, you'll just speak to him, and God will answer your prayer. That's when he comes during the millennial reign. Moses ruined the picture by hitting it the second time. You're not going to touch Jesus Christ when he comes back the second time. And he's like, You ruined my picture, and so he holds him accountable. And, and, and Peter, or Paul, makes that clear to us. Look at verse 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, he says, Because you believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, he says, You ruined it for me, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into land which I have given them. Uh, this is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, uh, and where he sanctified them. Meribah means strife. Uh, but if you look down to uh, verse 22, verse 22 says, And the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh, and they came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the Mount Hor by the coast of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered unto his people. That means he's going to die. For he shall not enter into the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because ye rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son. 
So Aaron and his son are going to go up and bring them up into Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, and put them upon Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, and he shall die there. And Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up into Mount Hor in the sight of the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there in the top of the mountain. And Moses sent Eleazar, or sorry, and Moses and Eleazar came down from the mount. When all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, they mourned for Aaron thirty days, even all the house of Israel. So, how would you like to have that trip? Uh, Aaron, you and your boy have to come up. You're going to die. Okay. He walks. He goes. He knows. He's up, and God tells him it's because you rebelled. You rebelled against what I said. You're there, and then Moses and Aaron worked together. You were to stop him. You let him do this, and he held him just as accountable. Strikes him dead. I mean, in my mind, I picture him standing there. He puts the clothes on him. When God says it, he just collapses and goes down. I guess they have to carry him down. They have this mourning. Moses' death comes next. Look in Deuteronomy 32, so the next book. The very last chapter of the book, Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 34. I said 32. This is where uh, he lets Moses lead them closer, brings them right up uh, to the promised land. He already tells them that Joshua is going to be in charge where Aaron's secession went right to his oldest son, Eliezer. Uh, Moses is to be grooming Joshua, and he does during these last few days. So he's going to be the one who takes them over to the promised land. Moses argues for it. Let me do it. Let me do it. And he's like, no, you disobeyed me. He begs and he forgives, but God says, there is a sin that I'm going to have to take your life for it. And so there's that time of arguing. So now it's this point where he totally tells him, don't say anything more. And so Moses doesn't. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 34. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pigshah and is over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan. So he lets him look. And all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah unto the uttermost sea. In the south of the plain in the valley of Jericho and the land of the palm trees of Zohar. So he lets him see it all. Verse 4. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. So God kills him and buries him. Verse 7. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. And we learn this. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. And the children of Israel wept for him in the plains of Moab 30 days. And so it's not like he was old. He died of old age. He was 120. He was like, his eyes weren't even dim yet. His natural strength was still within him. It was a cause of disobedience. God wants us to know. I took him. I took him for disobedience. So he does. Uh, God told them something specific to do in a very specific way, and they didn't do it, and it cost them dearly. Nadab and Abihu, they were two priests, and they were supposed to be offering up fire, and yet they took strange fire. There's a fire by a certain prescribed way that they were to offer it, and they just like flicked a bick and went in there and lit it, and it took off, and they're like, no, this is supposed to go a certain way, and so God strikes them dead. I have a prescribed way. Why? Because the picture is, you and I don't just come to God willy-nilly. We come through one way, through Jesus Christ. And if he had let this pattern continue, it would have gotten way out of hand. So God is trying to bring it into line. He's like, my way is specific. And so he strikes down these two priests. Strikes them dead because they offered something unprescribed. They did it in an unprescribed way, in a casual way. They just went in there and lit the fire. You can't wing it. God is very specific on how you come to him. He's very specific on how you do things. So rebellion and treating something as common 
is the sin, one of these sins. No respect can be the sin unto death. Achan coveted. Remember, he told them, don't take anything out of Jericho. And Achan saw money. And he saw clothing that was something like he hadn't seen before. And he coveted and he took it and he hid in his house. And God struck him dead because he coveted. Uzzah is the guy who was pulling the cart that had the Ark of the Covenant on it. And it started to fall off. And he turned around and put his hand on it and stopped it. And God struck him dead because he was trying to stop it from falling off. He was doing things good other than God said, here's how you move it. You put two rods in it and you carry it. You don't touch it. And because he took it as a light thing and just, again, he's not even thinking and didn't obey and was doing what the king said versus what God said and he put his hand on it, struck him dead right then and there and it shocked David, it shocked the whole country. And they went back and they read and they read all in details. How are we to move this? And it took his death because he took it and he, and he treated it just like it was something hauling on a cart and God's like, no, you moved me in a specific way and it struck him dead. So he didn't obey. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied. They gave money. It was a free will offering. They said they gave it all, but after they got the income from selling the property, they kept some back for themselves. And they said they wanted the accolades of giving it all, but they didn't want to give it all. And so they put on the big show that they were giving it all, and God strikes both of them dead because they lied to him. And they were living the life of a hypocrite. They wanted all the accolades. That, oh, we're doing all this good thing, but they love money, and they wanted that. It was theirs to keep. And they could have just gave, given half, and they, God would have, they probably would have been on. We'd never know their name. But because they lied about what they were given, Lord, I'll give you all that I have. But I'm going to keep this half. He strikes them dead. And there's the last one I say. It is in 1 Corinthians 11, if you turn there. 1 Corinthians 11. I don't always read, but I hit it every so often. Because it's associated with communion. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. It says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. They treated it like a feast, like it was any other time. Oh, snack time, bread and crackers. You know, and they were just taking it. They didn't reserve the respect that was supposed to go into it. They didn't, they treated it as common. They didn't separate it and, and, and sanctify it in their mind. They didn't hollow it in this way to the point where when Paul specifically addressed it, they got drunk. They drank, ah, offer the wine. They just kept drinking it until they got drunk. There was no reverence. There was no respect. They just treated it like it was a party where the church got together and ate something. It says some are sick because of it. It says some are dead because they didn't give it any respect at all. Some churches make sure that a kid has to be a certain age before they can partake it because of this, because it's a warning unto them. I let the parents be respectful. You know your child and, and whether they're going to take it with respect and the reverence that is there. So I place it on you as a priesthood of believer in that way. Some have it only after baptism. Have you followed in the first things before you do this out of respect? Are you going to treat this with respect? It's between you and God. Are you obedient? Are you being obedient? Some only do it four times a year or a quarter a year or two times a year. I know one church that does it one time a year because this is a scary thing. It's not just something they make up. That's their church tradition. It's because it's something that we are to do with reverence and respect. It's one of the hardest things for me to get used to because I came from a church that did it every quarter. And I was afraid I would see it as too common. 
I didn't want it to be too common. I wrestled with, Lord, am I making this common? I don't want it to be just something, well, it's that part of the service, and now we're doing this. And so we try to approach it with reverence and respect and with warning. And so I try to pay attention. I try to make you pay attention, try to make me pay attention. I want to, again, reverence it and have respect because I don't want to be sick and die because of it. So what is this sin that 1 John, if we turn back there, is talking about? Well, we've seen several. Rebellion, disobedience, covetousness, hypocrisy, lying, again, casualness. So here's what I think this sin is. I think your sin unto death is different than my sin unto death. I think it's different for each and every one of us. Um, J. Vernon McGee put it this way. He, he had a good way of putting it down into a story to help you understand it. And he said, there's a mom who had her little child, and of course her little child's an angel. You know, oh, her little angel. And then the neighbor kid, you know, he was a brat, you know, because he's a neighbor kid. And so uh, her little angel and the brat were outside playing, and she heard the brat screaming and crying. And, and she went and looked at the window, and there's her little angel on top of the kid just pummeling him. Just sitting on top of him and pummeling him. And she like, yells out, little angel, stop beating on that kid. And he's like, Okay, mother. And she goes back to her desk, and just not a few minutes later, she hears the kid screaming again. She looks out the window, and her little angel's on top of the boy again, beating him in the face, you know, hitting him. And she's like, Angel, I told you, stop beating that little boy. Okay, mother, I will. But we know how the day goes on. A little bit longer, she hears it again. She hears it again. She finally she yells, she says, You come in this house, my little angel, because I told you to quit beating up on the neighbor kid, even though he is Brett. <laughs> she kind of told you to quit that. I don't want to come in. I told you to come in. I don't want to come in. I told you to quit hitting him. I don't want to quit hitting him. So what's the mom have to do? She has to go out, grab him by the ear, and pull him in the house, right? That's what this is. What is it that God has said, don't do that? And you're like, I won't, and then you do it. I won't, and then you do it. I said stop doing it. I don't want to stop doing it. That's probably the sin unto death in your life. That's scary. And so yours is different than mine. But I think that story puts it in a way that I can apply it to me. Verse 18 says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked toucheth him not. Now, we're in 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 5. And we already know that 1 John, in chapter 1, he tells us that you're going to sin. And that's why he gives us the Christian bar of soap. If we confess our sin, he'll cleanse us from our sin. You know, if we apply it. And so we knows we are going to sin. He is saying here, you don't live in sin. You can't just abide in it. A Christian will not live in sin. It's not a continual sin. We stop. We repent. We run back. And we, when we return, we come to him broken. Um, uh, we, we go home running, Lord, what was I doing? You know, when the first time he says, hey, stop it. We're like, well, I didn't realize I was doing this. And we run back in the house and we go in the story. Mother, I'm sorry I was doing this. I didn't mean to do that. We, we run home to him. We say, I'm sorry. And so we at least wrestle with that sin. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do that, Lord. And we try to put safeguards in our life to avoid us, to help us avoid that sin. Uh, James 1.12 tells us that if, uh, i got to look at it. Uh, J- James 1.12, I'll read it for you. It says this, um, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised them that love him. So as you get a crown, a reward that we can earn for heaven is fight temptation in our life. Fight lust in our life. Fight coveting in our life. Fight lying. We have the sins in our life. If we fight against those and say, I don't want to do that. I want to wage a war against it. I want to live a holy life. God says, I'll reward the wrestle. I reward the fight. I will give you a crown on that day. 
This sin is a sin that you don't fight. You're the rebellious little angel out there saying, I will, Mom, but you don't mean to. You're not going to. You love it. You're going to keep doing it. And so that's what it is. We're to fight it. We're to struggle. So what is it that you fight? Or what is it that you don't fight but you know is wrong? That's probably it, if it's in your life. Hopefully, we fight all sin. That, that's, that's the idea, is that we're to be resisting all sin, we're to be fighting all sin. And if it bothers you and it makes you nervous and your palms are sweaty, that's a good sign. That you're like saying, Lord, search me, try me. What is it in my life? Because we have a care and a concern that we want to be right with him. That's a good sign. Verse 19 of 1 John says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world is lieth in wickedness. We are of God, so expect battles. We still live in the flesh. The battle's still going to be there. The flesh wants to be satisfied. The old Brian tries to take over every once in a while and says, satisfy me. And I'm to say no to my flesh. I'm to say no. I'm to say I, the Lord is my Lord of my life now. Not you, flesh. And I'm to have this wrestle within myself. The world is still around us and is still going to try to entice you. Doesn't that look fun? Don't you want to try it? Everyone else is doing it. Come on, you're of age. Who's going to know? Happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas. Yeah, you know, They do all this thing to try to lure us away and we're to fight against it and say no. Satan's still there too, right? He would love to have you fall. He would love to have you so beaten up and bruised by yourself that you're like, I can't even go to church anymore and separate you from the pack and get you out of the congregation to where you're no longer effective. He would love that. So we're to resist the devil and he will flee. Verse 18 says, at the very end of the verse, it says, uh, he that is begotten of God keepeth himself and the wicked one toucheth him not. Touch Do you keep yourself to sin from sin? That's what a Christian is. We try to keep ourselves from sin. We try not to set ourselves up for failure. We try not to go to the places where we will be tempted. We try to stay away from that area. We put up a safeguard. We take two people with us. We don't travel by ourselves. We have someone accountable with us, accountability partner. We have someone that we talk to and pray to often. We have a phone call while you're there, letting people know where you are, what you're doing all the time. We are keeping ourselves from even the appearance of sin. That's how we're supposed to be doing it. And then it also says God's on guard and protects us. It says, the God keepeth him, and the wicked one touched him not. Whew, you want to stay when, in the center of God's will, away from all the evil and the wickedness, stay in God's will. He says, I will guard and protect you. I'll keep the evil one from even touching you. And if the evil one does come into your life, know that I had to get approval from God first. Think of Job, right? You know, Job was the righteous one. And then Satan had to get permission for any and every little thing. And so knowing that should then give us and bolster our, our courage to stand and to fight, knowing that God has allowed this. That means that he trusts me and where he is, I am being tempted. He's made a way of escape. I need to look for that window and how am I getting out of here? What's the flight plan? And so looking for those things because God says he's promised them for us. And God says, I reward that. I reward the fight. I reward the flight. I, re- I reward your uh, just trying to stay away from the evil that is out there and trying to be holy and come out from among them and be separate. He says, I reward that openly, that you struggle, that you fight. Because he says, ah, I'm for that. Because this is family business. Family business is hard. So it's time to put our big boy pants on and realize that we are in a battle, that we are in a fight, and that it's not just easy peasy all the time. It is us fighting. It's a war being waged, and it's a war for our mind. It's a war for our thought. It's a war for our loyalty. It's a war for what is true and what is a lie. Who do we stand on? Who do we stand for? Are we just going to be idlers and saying that, well, I don't want to learn anything else because, man, there's a lot of responsibility in that. Or are we going to try to grow with that responsibility and let the Lord teach us and take us further and stay closer to Him? And let's please Him. 
That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what John is building towards. For us to be his children, pleasing him, and being his hands and feet on this earth. Because John's been removed now, but he left us a book to guard us and to say, come into the family business. Be you doers, be you overcomers. He'll reward you for it. It's worth it. Send your treasure ahead. Put your treasure in heaven. That's where your heart will be also. And you will live a life that is different and a life that will be rewarded openly in front of your king. Where he will say, well done, thou good and blessed servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. That's what he wants to say. He doesn't want to have, to have us doing those other things. So there's a lot of time for self-reflection here today. And so uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll have our invitation.